And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Scheinbaum. We have a special treat with you today. We're, we are going up to the hill to talk to Mr. Chip Walgren, who has had quite a career working across offices on appropriations with a, with a little bit of time in the executive branch as well. So, Mr. Walgren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, glad to be here. Glad to be talking. Let's start off, Chip, talking a little bit about where you're from and, and your upbringing. So you grew up Rockville, Illinois. Rockford, Illinois, yes. Rockford, Illinois, excuse yes. me. Born in uh, Peoria, about as Midwest as you can get. What was what was your childhood like? Me and my brother, my mom was a teacher, my dad was in sales. Um, I was not the best of athletes, my younger brother was. I was about getting involved in student activities, student government, theater, public speech, then did some stuff with the church and... Um, if there was a committee, I was on it or or adjacent to it. I guess I was a bureaucrat from a young age. <laughs> and so it sounds like government and service were a part of your life kind of from the get-go. It, it, yes. my Both my parents um, encouraged it. Dad from the sports angle, mom from civic duty. She was on the library school board. She was... Um, PTA. She was a number of boards while we were still young, mental health board, um, civil, some civil rights activities. And so w we observed this as kids growing up. Dad was off at meetings, park board meetings, that her mom was involved in stuff. And so that was the usual activity to us. Did you think you would leave Illinois when you were growing up or what was the plan to kind of to, to stay around and be close to family? When I was younger, I had two goals. The two things I wanted to be were an ar archaeologist who discovered the lost city of Atlantis, or I wanted to be president of the United States. Both of those necessarily involved leaving Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate in that my, the generation of my, before my parents on my mother's side very much encouraged travel. My great aunts, when they were in their 60s, decided they'd go around the world. So they were in Jerusalem, Jordan, before the, uh, the war in 68. They were in Cambodia when President Johnson went there, and they couldn't leave Phnom Penh because planes and things were shut down. But it was during the, the Vietnam War. These were two intrepid single ladies who just went around the world. Uh, and my dad had served in World War II, had been in Germany at, at the end of the war, right out of high school. So, again, it wasn't necessarily sticking around suburban Rockford, but getting out and seeing the world. I've always wanted to do that. That's remarkable. What a what a travel portfolio. I mean, I can I can only imagine when you when you have stories like that from uh, from relatives, what that motivates you to seek out. Let me ask you about one of your more impactful trips. And tell us about the first time you visited Washington D.C. Again, this is one of those, some people want to get a baseball glove or go to a World Series game as, as a birthday present. I wanted to go to Washington because my mom's brother and his wife were living in Annapolis, Maryland. And I got, they said, come out for the summer, come out for two weeks in the summer, we'll tour you around. So my brother and I both went out. I was 12. Um, landing in Washington was 
there's the Washington Monument. There's the mall. Nowadays on the plane, people say, oh, the mall. Where do we do the shopping? It's like, not a shopping mall. <laughs> it's the green space <laughs> near the White House in the Capitol. Yeah. Um, and the first thing that he did was take us down to Mount Vernon. So on our last day, we're given a choice of either going to the Naval Observatory, which had not yet become the vice president's residence, or going to the Washington Cathedral. And I said, let's go to the cathedral. That sounds interesting. It's a big Gothic building on a hill north of Georgetown. And um, we drive up, and there seems to be a funeral service going on. I noticed a lot of limousines and these guys in dark suits and with what I thought were hearing aids. And I said to my Aunt Jane, looks like there are a lot of deaf people here. Why? And she said, well, Chip, those aren't deaf people. Those are Secret Service agents. Turns out it was Earl Warren's funeral. And while we're standing there, the coffin comes out. The Supreme Court justices come out. Ted Kennedy and his wife, Joan, come out. Hubert and Muriel Humphrey. And then all of a sudden, there's, within yards of me, Richard and Pat Nixon. I'm 12 years old, seeing the President of the United States. And I'm just blown away, going, wow. I think I want to come out here when I can, when I get older, and, and be in D.C. Because there's so much history, and there's so much to do, and I just saw the President. Now, granted, he was resigned shortly thereafter, but still, it was an, it was fascinating for me to be here to see that. You can respect the office without, uh, you know, necessarily having to to worship the man, right? So yes, I, I think exactly. That's important. I think that's important. Wow, I, I I agree with you for sure. On I think the view when you land at Ronald Reagan National Airport, it, I'm not sure there is a more beautiful landing in America or the world. I mean, that is just, it, it, as a student of history as well, it really hits you for sure. Can you, it sounds like history is something that's important to you. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your, your course of study and how history has influenced your work and, and your view of the world? Well, when I went to the University of Illinois, I, I knew I wanted to go into political science. I thought I would be, want to become a lawyer. I decided after reading 1L, I would, did not want to be, <laughs> be a lawyer. Um, but, um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who wish they, they had that realization then. Early on, saved myself a couple of um, generations of uh, legal college bills. But I did take a lot of history courses. I was fascinated by European um, diplomatic history, the Congress of Vienna, and, uh, turn of the 19th century. And then I just happened to take a Russian history course and see the movie Reds that Warren Beatty had put together, Diane Keaton was in it, and it was about an American journalist who is in Russia and committed to the Russian Revolution. So this confluence of Russian history going back a thousand plus years with this pop culture film said, there's something fascinating about this. Plus it was the Cold War. Uh, we were spending a lot of time deciding who's in charge of the Kremlin, who's standing where on Lenin's tomb. Um, in high school, some people in my class had had a chance to go to Russia, to go to the Soviet Union. Um, I never did, but it was still st something fascinating to me. And I thought, well, let me become a let me as a minor in Soviet studies. And so I took Russian history, Russian film, Russian politics. I took Russian. I was pathetic at that. Um, after the second semester, the first test was an F, and the professor wrote, Kolya, 
you appear to be hopelessly lost. Have you considered dropping the course? And I didn't need the language credit, so I did. <laughs> uh, again, saving my grades. Uh, but it was it was fascinating. And so because of that, as well as my des desire to not stay in Illinois, and again, there were no Soviets to study in Illinois that I was aware of, my aunt and uncle said, if you ever are in Washington, come and stay with us. And they were living in Baltimore by that point. So I moved out to Baltimore. And by the way, this is 1980, the year that I graduated high school um, before going to college. I had been given an opportunity by my cousin, who just happened to be a U.S. congressman from Pittsburgh, to volunteer at the Democratic Convention, which was in New York City. So I went to New York, age 18, let loose in Manhattan for four days. <laughs> Being surrounded by Democrats. Now, I grew up in a moderate Republican household. John Anderson, who ran for president in 1980, was my congressman. Uh, I, I really respected John and his wife, Kiki, and what, what he was standing for. Wasn't enamored of, of uh, Jimmy Carter. And frankly, at my age, Ronald Reagan scared me. He was going to take us into nuclear war. And it turns out a lot of the young people who were at the Democratic Convention were planning on voting for John Anderson <laughs> because... They also felt the same way about Jimmy Carter. Again, it was exposure to the political system and, and the East Coast and what was just minds, people thinking, thinking the way I did, and, and then getting into arguments because we didn't agree on lots of things, uh, which was fascinating. And then I went to college and yeah. decided again with that experience, let me move east. So, so pretty, pretty cool that you, as an 18-year-old, were exposed to New York City and still chose DC as a yeah. New Yorker I, I respect that uh, <laughs> give us a, just before we move on from this I, I think most of our listeners probably have never been to a, a political convention before can you tell us a little bit what is that atmosphere what is it like especially as it, you're an 18 year old you know what what does that feel like um, depending on your age the conventions can be any number of things a lot of it is going to parties. To me, being on the floor of the convention during the speeches, um, I was there on the in the rafters when Ted Kennedy gave his Dream Will Never Die speech. Uh, walking on the floor with the credentials, I met Chip Carter, and I said, Chip, my name's Chip, too. But I also met Coretta King and John Glenn, uh, these people who were part of my upbringing as people I saw on TV or read about in the newspapers, and they're now human. They're, in, they're come to life. And there's an arrogance when you're young, totally understandable. Uh, we were told that if Jimmy Carter or Ted Kennedy showed up and they didn't have their credentials, we weren't supposed to let them in the building. <laughs> so I told this assistant Good to luck. the Secretary of Education, sorry, she doesn't have her credentials. I can't, come, I can't let her in. And he was saying, but she has an interview with Walter Cronkite in five minutes. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then my supervisor overruled me. But again, there's an energy there. And if you're at all interested in, in politics and in the American system, whether it was 1980 in New York or just two years ago when I was um, in um, Philadelphia for um, um, Hillary's uh, nomination, I have become a Democrat over the years I was up here. Some of the thrill and excitement is still there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what's especially that's... fun for me was I was sitting with some young people who had been to the Dem Republican convention earlier. And I said, what do you think about the two different conventions? 
And they said, well, if for the, for, with the Philadelphia Convention, well, the crowd's much more diverse. It looks a lot, much more, a lot more like the America we know, mm. as opposed to being all one kind of person. And mm. I thought, well, that's a great observation for, for a young person in college, but it, I thought it was also spot on. I think that you're you hit on two really important themes of of energy and history, and and when you think about political conventions and uh, and even your your career trajectory in many ways, that uh, you can see how those two those two themes loom pretty large. I, w- I want to fast forward a little bit because you started talking about politics and and your own evolution, and I think when most Americans think of Capitol Hill today, politics is probably one of the first words that comes to mind. But you've served in personal offices and on professional staff capacities. And I'd love to just ask you how politics happens on the Hill. You know, you, you work in appropriations. Do the back rooms of Capitol Hill look like, you know, the old CNN show Crossfire with just Democrats and Republicans screaming at each other all the time? Or is it as political as people think up there? Uh, yes and no. I, I hate to give that kind of an answer, but I think that's the only way I can do it. And you mentioned Crossfire. I go back further to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or yeah. to the great 1960 movie Advising Consent, where you have a view of the Senate idealized in one one sense and realistic, written by a, the book, underlying book was written by a Washington journalist in another that talks about the politics of a nomination battle. It's a great, it's a very great movie if you would want to uh, see Washington before the security and stuff, because they filmed a lot of it in the Senate. But you have, there's horse trading that goes on, but the senators, for the, the vast majority I know and I worked with, are very serious individuals. They're dual-hatted. They're United States senators, so they have to look out for the national interest, but they're the senator from X state. So the United States doesn't elect them. The people of Montana or Illinois or California elect them. So they've got to look out for their home state interests. And that, to me, I think I see nothing. There's nothing wrong in, do, in that because that's how they're able to do national things is that the folks in their state, trust them well enough to send them to Washington to look out for their interests. Oftentimes, the same interests, they coincide. Sometimes they're different. And you can pick any number of issues, tax policy, border security, war and peace, any number of those things. Um, With appropriations, um, there are two types of committees in Congress. There's the authorizing committees and the appropriations committee. I jokingly tell people there are thinkers and doers in Washington. The authorizers are the thinkers. They think great thoughts. They have large staves. They have, and they don't have to pass any legislation. They just think up great things, and they may introduce the same bill over and over and over again and never get out of committee or get to the Senate floor. And then you have appropriations. We're the doers. We've got to get in the mud and make the sausage and do the nitty-gritty to get the government funded. Sometimes it's not pretty, but it has to happen. And as we've seen recently, that process has been breaking down more and more because 
the authorizers can't get, this is Chip speaking, don't get their job done. So they turn and they try to put their bills on the must-pass appropriations bills, saying, no, that's not our job. You do that. You tell, you set policy, and we, the appropriators, will then provide the funds to implement the policy that you've passed. Can or you, we're at an impasse now. The, so, so what's changed? Why is it so different now? And you have the benefit of... of a bit of a longitudinal view of this and having seen different administrations and, you know, Congress people and senators cycle through what's different. One is there's a lack of trust. There's been a breakdown of trust over the 34 years I've been up here that I've seen. And um, I've been fortunate to work with basically moderate democratic senators. My first boss, Dennis Deaconcini was from Arizona his senior senator was Barry Goldwater. There, he was at my boss's Democrat, Goldwater, Mr. Republican. They fought for Arizona things together. Then they differed on the other things. But when my boss would bring an appropriations bill to the floor, I remember one thing. Um, uh, it was an anti-communist trade bill, and we were trying to put sanctions on various products being imported from communist countries that didn't support human rights. And so it was various, various products. Well, Senator Pete Wilson from California, Republican, his staff person came over to me and said, you know, Senator Wilson was wondering if your boss would be willing to amend his amendment and include Romanian wine as one of the things that um, we're trying to, we would limit imports on because he's got the domestic California wine industry. So on the Senate floor, I go over to my boss and I said, this is Senator Wilson's guy. And he went, Senator Wilson was wondering if you would be willing to amend. And Dennis said, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's do that. Mm. So right there on the fly, he scratched, takes his amendment, adds Andromanian wines, sends his modified amendment to the desk. And that was the pending piece of legislation. Two senators, two different parties, same common goal, working together to pass something. Mm. And that's how more things operated. Not that they don't operate like that today. We just had this huge public lands bill, bipartisan, sweeping legislation get passed in Congress. And people say Congress can't work together. Well, they did. It took a long time. This is an authorization bill. So it was the thinker's bill. It took a while to get it done. But it passed both houses of Congress and has been signed into law. That's everybody working together. But mostly these days, the senators don't know each other. In the old days, the senators and the congressmen, they lived in town. They brought their families here. So their families knew one another. The senators would socialize with one another. They'd fight on the floor. And they'd sometimes it'd be real, sometimes it'd be theatrical. Mm. But then they would go off and they would still respect one another for their viewpoints. And the same thing would go on during a conference committee. I remember um, we were conferencing with the House on an interior bill, and my boss had a provision that he felt very strongly about. And the House Democratic chairman, crusty old guy from Illinois, was strongly opposed to it. He was having none of it. They were going at it hammer and tong. All of a sudden, my boss just slammed his hands on the table stomped out of the room. And I thought, wow, I've never seen my boss do this. 
we get in the hallway, he starts laughing. He said, <laughs> he said that's a tactic. They'll come my way. I know. Sid's got to, you know, get, get, save some face on this thing. So I did that. And sure enough, they compromised at the end and he felt good about that. But there's less and less about the, that, I think, and I, what I've seen today. Mm-hmm. The flip side, and you have these people who are coming over from the House of Representatives where it's an, a majority rule. The Senate is the dictatorship of the minority. One person can slow everything down. Right. In the House, it's the tyranny of the majority. You get 51 for 50 plus 1%, you can do anything. The Senate's supposed to stop that stuff from happening. The House frequently says the Senate is where legislation goes to die. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a good thing because there are bad bills that are coming from the House. The Senate does its own bad bills. But the thing to look at is the most recent funding bill that compromised with the, the conference committee with the chairman and the ranking of the vice chairman of the Senate and House Appropriations Committee. Those four individuals were ultimately empowered to come up with the legislation to fund the remainder of the government, as well as the border security stuff, which had been hold everything, holding everything up for months. Now, you look at that; those four individuals, were they 35 or 40 years old? No. These are people who, the youngest one, I think, was about 77. The oldest one's 84. They've been around for a while. They know how to cut deals. They know how to talk to one another. And they know how to look out for the public good. And they did it. What happened? The government reopened. We got the government funded for the rest of the year. Now, granted, the rest of the year happens to be September of this year. Hey, it's something. (laughs) But it's something. We'll take what we can get, right? We'll We'll take what we can get. Chip, let me ask you to think a little bit about your own role. You're now in a professional staff capacity. Tell us about how you see the role of professional staff. And in particular, you talked about the negative impacts of the churn of members and staff members over the last few years. So what do you think you and your peers can do to reestablish some of those norms of cooperation to help the Senate and the House run better? What helps, I think, ultimately is is kind of what just happened with the, the chairs and rankings of the full committee. You have a mix of people with different interests and different experience levels. If everybody on the staff is the same age as been working on each committee or subcommittee for the same period of time, you're going to get some stale thinking. But if you get new people coming in and fresh ideas, that's always good. Sometimes I play the role of, well... We did this three times before in the last two administrations. Each time it didn't work for the following reasons. Perhaps if we took a different tactic with the same goal in mind, but trying to achieve it a different way. And then some of the folks who have a different skill set, younger, different experience set, come in and we work together to further our boss's interests or the national interest. That's a way to do things. So a bit uh, of institutional memory there. Institutional memory helps greatly, I think. Um, but it shouldn't be all old-timers. What's mm. impressed me a lot is we've, we on the committee, I was in my 30s when I got on the Appropriations Committee. 
I've had 10 years in the personal staff and four years in the administration before I got on appropriations. Mm-hmm. I'm doing appropriations with my boss, the, you know, the one senator, but I'd never been on the committee. So I'm in my mid-30s. We had people have come on the committee who were in their right out of college or in their mid-20s. And part of me says, what do they know? What behind the ears? They are some of the brightest people who are here to learn. They're not dismissing the old-timers. They're listening to the old-timers and bringing their own skill sets to make legislation work. And I'm very impressed by that. If someone, I don't care how old you are, but if you're here to learn and to contribute to the process, not here to burnish your resume so you can go off and lobby or do something else, that's great. I want to spend time with you. I want to answer any questions you have, and I want to learn from you and listen to you. Mm-hmm. It's a two-way street. Yeah, the attitude matters so much. So we've been, so the committee appropriations have been very, very uh, fortunate. Again, we have some people who've been here for a long time, uh, but when we when the Senate went 50-50, I forget how long ago that was now, but when Jim Jeffords is a Republican switched to becoming a Democrat, and the Senate was then 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, and we had to divide everything, the Democratic staff had been very small. We brought on a whole bunch of new blood, and all of a sudden, a lot more women, more diversity, mm-hmm. fresh ideas, and those women who were brought on as Junior staffers are now clerks of the subcommittees. They're the ones who are in charge of interior appropriations and agriculture appropriations, transportation appropriations, defense appropriations. It's fascinating to watch and see. Mm-hmm. One tactical question before before I move on, and I want to mm-hmm. ask you about your time inside the executive branch, but uh, you mentioned clerks. Give us the quick hierarchy or the quick overview of, of kind of the staff pantheon who are the different staffers and and how do they relate to one another see this is the secret language that we speak to scare everybody you're asking (laughs) me to pull back the curtain no i'm teasing in the in a a committee committee staff you have the staff director for the full committee and then we have in the senate now we have 12 appropriation subcommittees and each subcommittee has a clerk which is a staff director Problem is, or the the reason we don't call them staff directors generally is that the subcommittee staff tends to be anywhere from two to seven people. Mm-hmm. So you have seven majority staff running the defense appropriations subcommittee with three or four minority staff. So you have ten staff people on the authorizing side, the armed services committee. You have a staff of about 45 or 50. So you've got 10 of us having to spend the money that the 45 or 50 are authorizing. So, so, this, so it's, it's staff director, clerk, and then the rest of us are professional staff. And that's on the, just on appropriations. Other committees have slightly different titles. Personal staff, you have a chief of staff or administrative assistant that's the person who is in charge of the political advisor to the senator. You have a legislative director who basically has the oversight over all the bills that the senator is involved in, the committees the senator sits on, as well as making sure that the senator is aware of 
what votes are coming up and helping him or her get their position on things on, you know, where, where are you on ag policy? Where are you on funding the Contras in El Salvador going back to 25 years? Um, and then you have legislative assistants and the LA's the legislative assistants are the ones who work with the ledge director to write the memos, develop the policy, staff the Senator at the hearings, write up the questions, the memos, do the follow-up. They'll draft letters to the committees saying, Senator X wants to see five widgets uh, funded in this bill because the widgets are made in his or her state or, or, or doesn't want to see money wasted on building a 14 icebreaker. I only have one, but another example. And then you have legislative correspondence. And frankly, that's where I started. And what's great about being an LC or alleged correspondent in a Senate office is you're answering mail from the constituents in the state on a whole bunch of different issues. Like I said, I was a poli-sci Soviet studies major, and I ended up having to draft letters on land use policy, water policy, hard rock mining, raising fees. I knew nothing about Western issues, how water is so important in the desert Southwest when I went to work for Senator DeConsaney. I was aware of corn and soybeans. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about flooding through irrigation to, to grow oranges in the desert. And that was just one aspect. And then wild horses and burrows. But you learn this stuff. And I was a liberal arts major. And what was great about having that degree is I didn't necessarily know anything about land use policy, but I came with the tools to get the information to get smart on very quickly that issue, which is what's fascinating about these jobs is you can walk in planning to do this, focus on this issue, all of a sudden out of, out of left field, you get something entirely out of your area of expertise. You've got to get smart on it because all of a sudden someone's got an amendment on the floor on the budget and you've got to be able to brief your boss as to what this person is trying to do. What impact is going to have on the state, um, uh, on his political record? Where's the NRA on the use of switchblades? Where are the manufacturers on foreign-produced switchblade knives versus the domestic knife industry? This is actually an issue we had to deal with 12 years ago. Mm. Came and went, but we had to get smart on it. It's very interesting because it's these are some of the same ways that we talk about, you know, here in the business community. It's there are, there are some of those same kind of entry level jobs. It lets you kind of get smart on a lot of different industries or markets very quickly. You don't become an expert on any one of them, but you learn how to get really smart on them really quickly. And it's it, you're t- you're describing the exact same process. Uh, and and by the way, Chip, I should just I should say in case this was not essential listening before, you've just made that the briefing you just gave of how of, of the hierarchy of of Congress just made this essential for anybody considering uh, a role on the Hill in or or wanting to influence legislation in Washington. So thank you for that. Give us one more tidbit on that front. You said you started as a legislative correspondent. How did you uh, how did you actually make your way to the Hill? How did you secure that job? 
uh, desire. I've been very fortunate to be having been in the right place at the right time. Uh, I, I moved to Washington looking for a job. I was waiting tables in Baltimore looking for work on the Hill. I took an entry-level job stuffing envelopes for fundraisers at one of the party, the political party organizations at $5 an hour. And I would commute in to Washington, stuff envelopes, work on fundraisers, to commute back to Baltimore and wait tables at night and on the weekends. So that was my life. But I was trying to get informational interviews. So I met with, just by networking, and I did have a cousin who was a congressman, so he, he and his he didn't know really how to help me, but his wife got me a, a foot in the door with one office, which ultimately ended up being the office where I started working. Um, but I got a job at the House Office Supply Service. So with my poli-sci Soviet studies degree, I was delivering Xerox boxes of paper to members' offices and trying not to mess up the elevators, the service elevators in the process. I went into the office to do a, a writing exam, and I thought I'd be given some letters to take home and writing sample and respond. And they said, do you want to use a typewriter or handwrite out your response? We didn't have computers back then. In the senator's office right then and there. And I said, uh, I guess I'll write the responses out. But I don't know his position on these issues. They said, it doesn't matter. We just want to see if you can write a coherent sentence. Mm-hmm. So it was the African famine and um, the sanctuary movement, surprisingly enough, in Arizona with the churches and people coming across the border. So I had to draft responses to those things. But I also sent out resumes to all the incoming freshman senators. Al Gore uh, was one of them. Uh, Brock, Brock Adams from Washington State. John Kerry didn't get office, offers in those offices, but I got one in Senator DeCassini's office. So, again, legislative correspondent, and I had initially had him interview, but there wasn't a job. But three weeks later, someone announced in the person in the senator's office he was leaving. And they thought, oh, Chip was just here. He wrote, he wrote okay. Came back in, and they offered me the job. Wow. Timing is everything. T- timing is everything, but you know what? There's There's a message there, too, which is your own hard work and perseverance. Because, yes... You've got to be in the right place at the right time. But part of that was being willing to get to the D.C. metro area and to wait tables and to do whatever it took, even if it you know, it was a menial task or it didn't seem like it was taking full advantage of, of everything that you knew or was, were capable of. And that message is important in any field and, and to anybody who, who aspires to, to a certain position. So, Chip, I'm going to let you go in a minute here, I promise. But before I do, there's one other story that I think really illustrates your your tenacity and your hard work and perseverance. And I would be doing wrong by my listeners by not asking you to share a little bit. You did a tour of duty, so to speak, in the executive branch in the Clinton administration. But your path to getting in there was was not the same as as it would be for many. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, I'm gay. And um, that's never been a secret in my, in my life. But when I was started working for Senator DeConcini, and then going to the Clinton administration, there were forces at the time, this is back in the 80s, where gays is a security risk. So I was being asked to provide the names of anyone I had sex with. 
And I went to my boss, the senator at the time, and he said, that's ridiculous, Chip. They would never ask me those questions. And um, I ended up having to get a lawyer to figure out a strategy on how to do this, how to get my clearance, show that I was not a security risk, uh, show that if I had named names, as it were, which is very McCarthy-esque, if you think about it, sure. um, uh, you, I could be putting other people's jobs in jeopardy because they're not out at work or they're not out to their peers, whereas I've been out and I'm not a risk. My family knows, my friends know, the boss knows. I mean, he even called up Jim Woolsey, who was the, who was the CIA director, and said, I've got a guy who you know, has had a top secret clearance. He needs to get special, a special higher clearance to work on the Intelligence Committee. Do you have a problem with that? Woolsey said no. And to his credit at the time, the Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, said that just after I'd gotten my clearance, that um, Gaze as a security risk was an old chestnut. It was a, it was a, a false um, statement to be made because he had a staff person who... Um, was in a position of trust, and the Secretary of Defense knew that. He knew that that person was not compromisable. So I didn't have the money to pay for the lawyer, but I did it anyhow, and and uh, have had clearances and been investigated by FBI, DOD, CIA every five years since 1989 or so. wasn't easy. And it was it's unfortunate that, you ha that I had to go through and pay an attorney to be able to serve my country in a yet another capacity. But I had people who were supportive of me at the time. And we've seen that change greatly it's, over it's, the years. And that's I'm pleased to see that. Yeah, it's truly it's truly incredible to to think that. That's that's what was going on just a few years ago, and and it does raise the question. I mean, you said it, you said it, you, putting putting you through all these hoops to serve your country. A lot of people would have just walked away. Why why is it worth it for you? Why, despite all of those you know those trials and tribulations, did you did you say no? I I want to do this. I have to do this. It's it's interesting because at about the same time, I was being approached by a couple of defense companies to go and lobby for them because my boss at the time was on the defense appropriations subcommittee. And I thought, Hey, I'm in my early thirties. I can go and make a lot of money, but making money's never been my ultimate goal. Yeah. I want to be able to pay my bills and have a house and travel and stuff, but I don't need to have a huge house and McMansion or something like that. Cause it doesn't interest me going in and selling this weapon system that'll kill bad guys was not my idea of the reason I want to go to work. It's the challenge and the excitement and the drudgery and the long hours, but also it's being on the Senate floor for the votes. It's not being around power, but working in these halls that people for 150 years, this is where the Union soldiers slept, the wounded soldiers during, you know, during the Civil War. This is the hallway that Harry Truman ran down when he was told that Franklin Roosevelt had died and he was president. This is where Barry Goldwater and or John McCain's body lay in state. Ronald Reagan's body lay in state. Senator Byrd was on the floor lying in state. All of this, to me, is 
fascinating. And then there are the small things that you get to do in a job like this. Not passing huge bills or, you know, huge weapon systems, but I worked on a project for getting some, a small amount of money for a rural law enforcement initiative in lots of parts of the country where there are not a lot of people and there are only one or two sheriffs or, or police officers in the county force. And they're facing these drug epidemic um, methamphetamine at the time. Uh, they didn't know how to do real policing. So we were able to find a little bit of money to seed with and join up with the university in a state that would not, it's not one of your Harvards or Stanford's or, or UCLA's, to grow this program so that people who want to stay in the, the central plains of the upper Midwest, they, ha they have a chance to work on rural law enforcement issues with a small amount of money. And that, that really brought it home for me. Th that those kinds of things where a little bit of work on your part helps improve lives of other people. That's fantastic. Chip, before I let you go, any final words for our listeners? It's unfortunate we saw the uh, the shutdown and the impact that it had on the lives of federal employees. Uh, we were discussing earlier if anything good that came of it. Perhaps it's showing the American people that their tax dollars actually do provide them with something. It's not just going to some black hole in Washington, but it's paying for the air traffic controllers and the TSA agents and helping you get safely from one place to another. And you may not want to work in Washington, but go work for the National Park Service. Nothing's better than being outdoors in the, in the, in the parks. There's some great jobs out there, some great opportunities, science. The government is still the largest funder of raw science in this country. And if you can create something that's going to help save lives. That's definitely worth it. Go to NASA. There's so many things the federal government does. And I think that we as a nation benefit from people who are enthused about working to better the lives of people in this country. Yeah, thank you. One of the things that, that really just resonates with me about, about you and what you've said today is your, your immense respect for where we've come from and optimism for where we're going. And so thank you for your generosity of time and spirit, and thank you for being with us. And thank you for all that you've done and continue to do for the country. Well, no, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.